my third piece of advice is that at the end of the day, these kinds of changes require political courage. People come to me all the time and say, you are so wonderful. We want to figure out how we get more people like you into superintendencies. And I sort of laugh because I think, you know, no one ever in a million years would have hired me as a superintendent uh, if I had, had I gone through sort of the traditional processes, right? <clears throat> the only reason why I'm in this job is because of the mayor, uh, because he has sort of the foresight to say, you know, I want somebody different who's going to kind of push the envelope on this stuff. But really, when you look at it, uh, I, there's nothing different or unique or special about me. If you took any Teach for America alum anywhere in the country and stuck them right where I am right now, they would want to do all of the same things that I'm doing. In fact, lots of sitting superintendents want to do all the same things I'm doing. The reason why they can't is because they don't have any political capital. They don't have any political will behind them, right? The only reason why I've been able to do the things that I've done is because of the backing and support of the mayor. This is a man who you know, said to me at the beginning that he was willing to risk everything that he had so that the schools could be successful. And while everyone else has been saying to me, you know, the whole three years that I've been here, you're moving too fast, slow down. The, the mayor has always believed that we're not moving fast enough, right? So his, his ca political calculus has been people might not like the changes along the way, but at the end of four years when people have to vote again, we will have changed the school district so significantly that they'll realize that this was the right thing to do. So whereas everyone else is saying, slow down, he's usually like, okay, 2010, coming up, let's go. Uh, move a little quicker. Uh, and uh, let me just give you one example of, of his political toughness. Um, last year, about this time, when we were trying to finalize the budget for fiscal year 10, uh, April 1 of every year, the mayor has to introduce his budget to the city council. And last year when he did that, um, his proposal uh, called for the schools to be held harmless, meaning no cuts to the public school system. Uh, this in the face of an $800 million deficit in the city. And people went nuts. Right? I mean, other elected officials, uh, uh, other agency heads, people across the city were saying, the schools make up a huge portion of the city's budget. They are going to have to shoulder their fair share of the burden. And the mayor said, no, they don't. He said, we are in the economic situation that we are in this city and in this country because of the irresponsibility of adults. We are not going to make up for that on the backs of children. And he said, you know, I walk around the city all the time saying that schools are my number one priority. Education is my number one priority. He said, I don't say that because it's a nice thing to say. I say that because I mean it. And this is what having a priority means, is that in hard times like this, if you have to cut everyone else a little deeper so that you can protect your priority, that is the definition of having a priority. And so he took his blows on that. And remember, it was not a politically popular thing to do because only 20% of the voting population in the city actually have school-aged kids. So it wasn't a political calculus. It was a calculus that he made because of what he told me when I first started this job, which is he said to me, you know, my, I have no greater aspiration than to be a great mayor for this city. And I know that this city can never be a world-class city until we have a first-rate public school system. And so, you know, throughout this entire um, approximately three years that I've been on the job, uh, especially during the tougher times, 
when people have said, you know, we got to pivot off of this, we can't, we can't push this as hard, the mayor has been absolutely unequivocal. Every step of the way, the man has not blinked or flinched once. He's not interested in kowtowing to the unions or any other interest group. He always looks at me and says, if you believe that this is in the best interest of children, then I'm going to back you 100%. And it is only when we have more local politicians who have that mindset and who have that political courage that we will be able to move the education and uh, public education reform movement forward in this country. Nothing short of that is going to um, push the envelope and see the progress that we need uh, other than that. So I will uh, stop there and take some questions. Thanks. <clears throat> yes. Okay. Always have Hello. Thank you for coming. Uh, I am uh, Stephen <coughs> Valentine. I'm a Reynolds Fellow. I'm at the Kennedy School and at Kellogg Business School. Um, I just have two questions. One is, what is your assessment of your success and the success of the, uh, the education system here in D.C. currently? And then also, um, now I'm forgetting. Uh, <laughs> this always happens. Uh, oh, the incentive structure for teachers. I mean, they are going to be able to earn bonuses, and that's from my understanding, comes from corporations and individuals. Is that sustainable? So uh, I'll answer both questions. So first of all, uh, in terms of how I measure my success, it's interesting because when I first got here, my, my mindset was I'm going to put my head down, I'm going to work harder than anybody has ever worked, and we are going to produce results. And after two years, we're going to see results that are unprecedented, and then you know everyone's going to kind of lay off, right? That was the most naive thought I could have had. Um, two years into this, if you look at the academic achievement growth of this city, they are at unprecedented levels. Um, our, uh, for example, uh, we've closed the achievement gap from 70% to 50% in a two-year time period, which 50% is still way too much. But if we maintain this trajectory, it means within that within five years' time from here, we could potentially close the achievement gap. Um, our elementary kids uh, have seen a 20 percentage point gain in proficiency uh, in uh, in math. So they've gone. We've gone from less than a third of kids being proficient to to about half the kids being proficient. Um, and I don't know if you were here yesterday. Yesterday, but uh, they announced the NAEP scores yesterday, and what it showed that is that we went from uh, being always the laggard, the, the bottom of, of, of the NAEP scores, to um, last yesterday they announced that we were the top-growing state in the country for fourth-grade reading. Um, so we've we've made some tremendous strides, but at the same time, I always try to keep the, the, the right sense of perspective. Our goal when we started this was to have the highest-performing urban school district in the country and to close the achievement gap uh, between white and black kids. And so uh, not too long ago, some, uh, somebody from the media asked me, what grade would you give yourself? And I said, I would give myself an F. And it was funny because all of the people who hate me were like, even she knows she's doing a bad job. <laughs> and all of the people who like me said, oh, she's being too hard on herself. She's done some good things. But the bottom line is that we still have fewer than 20% of our kids on grade level um, as it pertains to the NAEP examination at our secondary levels. If you get a 20% 
on a test, you get an F. So I don't want to move the bar at all. I want to I want to measure our progress um, and and um, my success uh, as being an administrator of this district based on the, the same measure that the people out in Fairfax and Arlington County measure their children's success. Um, <clears throat> The, uh, the the teachers union contract we are we are so close to this thing, um, but, but I've said that before. Uh, you're right that um, our, our new proposal calls for a pretty significant portion of the contract to be funded through external dollars. Um, however, we have had a, a, a consulting firm, firm come in and do a sustainability analysis, and what that shows is that we would absolutely be able to uh, sustain this with public dollars in the long run as long as we're aggressively moving forward on a lot of our reforms that we think are going to save money at the end of the day, particularly our special ed reforms. Ms. Reed, Ms. it's a pleasure to have you here today. Uh, my name is Alexei Novikov. I'm a, um, a medical student at Brown Medical School. Uh, my question to you is, you talk a lot about closing achievement gaps, um, you know, uh, disparity in, you know, people read two grade levels below, three grades below. What does that mean, really? Um, because uh, I would like to know, uh, for the purposes, when you talk about, you're, you're measuring your success in some terms, but these terms are not defined. That's one question. So how do you define a successful school? Second question is, um, it's not a secret that American high school, high school uh, secondary education in general, um, kids from United States public schools cannot compete with kids from European schools in some European countries, not all, but majority of European countries in science and math. So even if um, in an ideal situation, everyone reads at the grade level and everyone does the same, everyone performs as well as they possibly can, which is impossible. Um, it's ideal situation, guys. Ideal is never possible. Um, and then even in that situation, how do they compare uh, how would they compare to the European counterparts? Because it's important for us to, uh, you know, create new engineers, doctors, and lawyers in our country, not import them from somewhere else. I think that's important. So, Thank you. Love that sense of possibility. Uh, <laughs> Let me, let me say a few things. I, I think one of the most disheartening uh, statistics that, that um, my staff recently brought to my attention was they, they basically uh, mapped PSAT and SAT scores against our statewide standardized test and then what kids need to know to be able to be successful in college, in a competitive college. And basically what it showed is that, you know, we, we constantly strive towards proficiency, which is, means being at grade level. But what the data showed is that the, even the proficiency bar, which is what the U.S. Department of Education sets, is too low. Because really, if you, if you, if you crosswalk that against PSAT scores and, and what you need in college, our kids would have to be advanced, score in the advanced status, to actually be able to make it into a four-year college and then make it through all four years of that college. Um, so that just shows you how far off we are from creating that reality. But let me give you a, uh, a, an interesting fact that will hopefully change your sense of perspective about how possible it is to do that. Um, so Eric Hanishek, who's a, an economist, uh, recently completed a study in which he showed that we would, um, if, if we took one action, which is if we uh, took the bottom 6 to 10% in terms of our low-performing teachers, 
in this country, just, just 6 to 10 percent, and replaced them just with average performing teachers. So not the rock stars, but just replace the lowest performing 6 to 10 percent with average teachers. That one action would catapult this country from being 21st and 25th and 29th in the city in, in the in the in the globe in terms of math, science, and reading to in the top five. One action. So for everyone who thinks that it's sort of this impossible thing to get everybody there and all that sort of stuff, removing the bottom six to ten percent in terms of low achieving teachers is not that difficult a thing, as long as we put in place accountability systems where we can actually track you know, the effectiveness of teachers, and then we have the political courage that is necessary to, to, to have some accountability around that, we could actually quickly move this nation from being at the bottom to being at the absolute top. So have a little hope. One more question. All right. Politics and education, and um, I've been following um, you through sort of the leadership talks you've given on the Washington Post and stuff like that. And I've been really inspired by your take on um, basically going out there and just saying what you think needs to get done. And I'd really like to believe that that's just possible to do all the time. But I want to hear, especially for all of us who are going to be leading and going out there and putting our face on things that are unpopular, is there a time when you realize that isn't the right move to make? Is there a time when you sort of see, seen that backfire? Because I just, I want to follow that model, but I wonder what the dark side is. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, uh, when I went through the school closing process, my, my mother was in town. And uh, she, she wakes up one morning, and there's a, you know, a Washington Post spread, two pages in the paper, uh, showing, you know, the pinpoint map of all the schools that I'm closing. She turns on the TV, and there are people picketing outside of my office and throwing things at me at this meeting and that sort of thing. And, uh, and I came home that night, and she, you know, 11 o'clock at night, and she's like, oh, my gosh, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm fine. And she said, you know, I, I, when you were little, you never used to care what people thought about you. And she said, and I thought you were going to grow up to be really antisocial. <laughs> she said, but now I see that that is serving you well. Um, so, you know, you do, you, you, I think in order to, to take that stance, you do have to be someone who is okay with, uh, with you know, people being mean, saying nasty things and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Uh, she was actually back the other week and um, <laughs> to my house, and she said, uh, I came down for breakfast, and she said, oh, oh there's some um, people who are protesting something. I don't know what it was. They walked by the house, and I said, Mom, we're at 14th and Madison. There is nothing to protest in this little neighborhood except for me. And she said, oh, my gosh, they're here to protest you? Um, and it's, it's, it's interesting because uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a columnist at the Washington Post um, who, uh, after I made uh, an unpopular statement, um, he, he wrote a column in which he said, you know, I wish Michelle Rhee would stop pissing people off, basically, you know, because I like her and we've seen all this progress and, uh, and I want her to stay. But I don't think she's going to be able to last that, that long if she keeps doing what she's doing. So I called him afterwards, and I said, uh, you know, I appreciate the advice. I said, however, um, here was my, when, when I came into this job, my, my tech was, was this. I said, look, I have seen lots of superintendents, lots of well-meaning, smart, hardworking people come into superintendencies 
And because they spend a whole lot of their time trying to kind of please people or, or have a high approval rating and that sort of thing, they looked up, you know, five years into their tenure and thought, I haven't been able to really push anything that I wanted to push, right? And so I said, I am not smarter, cuter, faster than any of those people. I'm not going to try to take that route and, and just do it better, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go a route that neb nobody's ever gone before. And I don't know, quite frankly, if it's going to work. I, I feel like it is, um, and I have a lot of confidence in that. But I can't tell you with any kind of certainty that this is going to work. If I take this tack, and at the end of the day, they run me out of town, then people who come after me will know, OK, the, uh, I'm not going that direction, right? But then it's new information for people to have, right, about leadership style. And what I told this columnist, like, I was like, I said, you know, if you want a leader who is going to make people feel good and, and you know, sort of have this very collaborative reputation and, and, and be soft and fuzzy, that's fine. Then you should advocate for that kind of person. I'm not your girl, if that's what you're looking for. That's not, that's not the way I'm wired. It's not the way I operate, right? What the mayor signed up for when he brought me into this job is he knew that I was someone who was going to drive relentlessly towards the results regardless of who I happened to piss off along the way, because we were going to be able to sleep at night every single day knowing that the decisions that we made, popular or not, were the ones that were in the best interest of kids. And so, I mean, I can't tell you what that means <laughs> uh, for the future, but what I can tell you is that we have seen more academic progress in the city in the last two years than the district has seen in the 12 years uh, before that. Um, so that is an indication, I think, of the fact that when you, when you drive relentlessly towards those things and, and you're really just making decisions uh, based on, on what's right for kids instead of what's politically popular, that you can, you can get places faster. All right. Thanks.